unlike so many of the investments that we have, they're actually causing that disruption, working with the incumbents, not fighting against them. On my timeline, so you know, you, you cringe when you look back at your own <laughs> timeline. Like 15 years ago, my post that, uh, for this week was uh, uh, still not sure if I like this work from home thing. <laughs> <laughs> Did not age well. <laughs> Why don't you just say you told me so? Just say that. It'll make you feel better. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to the Results Junkies podcast. I feel like our pre-show should have been in the show because Paul and I were talking about things like work from home, um, and how much we uh, do or don't like Microsoft Teams. Uh, I'm on the I hate Microsoft Teams category, and Paul was telling stories about 15 years ago and not really knowing if work from home was going to be a thing or not. And here we sit, two moderately old guys. Well, one old guy and one moderately old guy uh, trying to predict what's coming next. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, last week's episode is... Um I've gotten a lot of like personal messages about it, you know, talking about work from home and what it means and, you know, uh, all that. So if you haven't already go check that out, but yeah, it is, it is wild, right? Like I, it almost feels weird to do anything different now, but 15 years ago, at least for us, it was a new world. I, I, what I was telling Ed, uh, before the show, or one of the things I was telling Ed before the show was, uh, uh, in my Facebook timeline memories or whatever, something came up this week where 15 years ago I posted uh, it's so embarrassing, but 15 years ago, I posted on my timeline, something like, uh, still not sure if I like this whole work from home thing. <laughs> and here we are 15 years later, uh, that, that post did not age well. So, <laughs> yeah, no. And the, and the genesis of the discussion was, I was saying about how much I really hate Microsoft teams because it just doesn't work well on, um, on many of my devices. Um, it just doesn't work well in the iOS atmosphere. And I was saying how, when I first started telling people, um, I, so my, uh, you know, we have a person on our team that I call the doer of all things, um, you know, cause she's way more than an assistant. And I actually stole that title from, uh, our friend, uh, on flow. I told her like, after like the 7,000th, like, you know, complete disaster of a Microsoft teams call where I couldn't get on. Uh, I just said, like, anybody who, um, and I'll be careful here so Jeremiah doesn't have to beat me out. Um, anybody who, who sends us a Microsoft Teams invite and insists that that's a platform that they want to be on, um, tell them that we are not interested in their product and to F off. And that has now been our company <laughs> policy. And and in the beginning, people were like, oh, that's unfortunate. We're really sorry you have those issues, you know. And and they just, like, everybody just sort of shrugged their shoulders. And now, as I keep telling people, sorry, I don't do Teams calls, they're, you know, they're begrudgingly admitting, yeah, we, you know, I really wish we hadn't invested in the annual plan. We're not renewing, you know, all that sort of stuff of, like, yeah, Teams kind of sucks. Well, I know this isn't the topic for today, but I'll, uh, what I'm about to say, but let me just throw it out there anyway. You know, when the pandemic hit, uh, right around that time, Google Hangouts was really the primary video chat tool. It was really yep. either that or Skype maybe back yep. then, right? Yep. But I don't know if you remember, Hangouts was super glitchy back then. Of so, course. yeah, yeah. You know, it was so annoying. You, it would work half the time. Yeah. And then Skype, I don't know. Like, I feel like nobody in the U.S. used it. It was only for European people or something. I don't know. I started I started recording my podcast on Skype in the very beginning, and it was horrible. Horrendous. Right. And then the pandemic hit, and Zoom just took off. And I think predominantly took off because it worked so well. Yeah. And perfect timing, you know, and they crushed it. Yeah. But then, here we are, two and a half years or whatever into the pandemic now. Uh, and like we, like, for example, at Bump, 
we actually, uh, this came up in a conversation a couple of weeks ago internally where we were like, wait, 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 how much are we paying for Zoom? You right. know, as a team grew, we we're like, no, 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 no. Hangouts works just fine now. <laughs> so, you know, like Zoom is still like available. Like, I think that the people at our company that deal with external, that are external facing, like corporate sales or whatever, like they're still using Zoom. That's kind of like the accepted thing. It's got all the security stuff that a lot of corporations we deal with want. But for everybody else, we're kind of moving to Google Hangouts now uh, because those guys have gotten a lot better and it's free. It just works. Yeah. So anyway, but I, I'm with you. Like I get like three Teams invites a year and I dread it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that there's a good placeholder for a future conversation that we, I was trying to like, you know, ring out how do we squeeze it in as a topic. But this whole philosophy that Google has done just this incredible job of badging everything with their name because you just said Google's name like three times when it came to Hangouts. Um, So uh, I, I, I'll tell a very funny story about Zoom real quick, but I, before we dive into that, just a, a quick reminder for folks that you can email us questions and comments uh, to show at resultsjunkies.com. You can find both of us on social media. Paul is at Paul Singh. I am at Pizza Emotion. And, and on the topic of questions, um, Tyler uh, wrote into us, and I just wanted to say, Tyler, uh, you know, absolutely promise I will get back to you so we can set up some time to talk about um, about your uh your startup mentality in the pizza world, definitely something that I have uh, I have interest in. But yeah, we had a call. Uh, I wasn't on it. Um, it was one of the folks who worked with me and then um, you know my business partner, Russell, who you know very well. And they, this was somebody that was asking for a very large check for us to invest into something. Um, and I'm going to anonymize it because I don't want to embarrass them. Um, but, but I say a really large check, like there were a lot of zeros that they wanted for the minimum investment. And so they decided to do a Zoom call. And uh, while they had like five or six people on asking for really, really large checks, they it became really apparent that they were using the free version of Zoom, which I think is a limit of 30 minutes. And they got they knew this going into it. They got done with their presentation 28 minutes in. And then they're like, OK, well, we're going to um, we're going to leave just a little bit of time for questions. They get halfway through the per first investor who wants to write a like large six figure check. Um, him asking the question like, OK, great. Um, yeah. No, um, so listen, um, we're just, you know, here's our email address to follow up with that question and any others. Just let us know. Thanks. And then psh, the screen goes dark on, you know, <laughs> potentially like, you know, five or six million dollars worth of investment checks. Done. Go Ugh, on. It's so cringy. It's so cringy. <laughs> oddly enough, we did. Oddly enough, we didn't invest. <laughs> So as we dig in here, we're going to talk about a couple of things like Uber and New York City taxis is definitely on our, our radar. But we want to talk about, I think we're going to try and talk about two separate things today. <clears throat> One of them has to do with an investment uh, in a company that we invested in um, a handful of months ago. And then another is something that uh, Paul flagged that um, we, I think we these both tie together in sort of a interesting sort of way. And so the first thing is, um, you know, we, we invested in a company uh, called Point Me. Um, and this is a little bit from the miles and points world from my other podcast. Um, but the interesting thing here is, um, and I won't go too deep into the product itself because this isn't about travel. It's more about how they're, how they're succeeding in their space. So I've known the folks from point me for a long time and I know they're super smart in this space. The, the what they were trying to produce was a product that would help folks use their points and miles more effectively. And when they came to me to invest, I said, you know, like, you know, the reason why I don't invest in a lot of travel startups is because I have like really strong opinions. And so sometimes I overthink it. And I, and I apparently overthought this because I said to them, I go, look, like, 
you know, the credit card companies don't want you to use your points more effectively because that costs them more money. They have to, you know, buy points and miles from, you know, American Oz, United, all these folks. And they, they made this convincing argument that they had had good conversations with some large banks that I can't mention um, and that they had traction with the programs. And again, I was still skeptical, but a great team, like super smart folks. I'm like, all right, I'm going to use the pulsing approach here and say, you guys are going to figure this out. And we invested. And so they launched. And what they, what they found was that all of a sudden they had all these airlines coming to them wanting to integrate. And the interesting thing is, like, if you think about it, and I know you book tickets all the time, Paul. Like, when you're booking on United, they want they ask you if you want to book a rental car. They ask you if you need a hotel. They ask you if you need travel insurance. Like, those are all ad, add-ons for them. And the airlines make great bank on those from a percentage standpoint because it's it costs them almost nothing to integrate it. But long story short, long story medium, um, the big thing with PointMe is they're, they're bringing new customers to the airlines as opposed to trying to monetize the eyeballs themselves because they're sending the, these customers to use their points to book with America or United, whoever, who can then sell them that rental car or that travel insurance or, an, or anything else. And so it's an interesting way in that they're causing a lot of disruption in how people use their points and miles. But unlike so many of the investments that we have, they're actually causing that disruption, working with the incumbents, not fighting against them. And I just think it's a very interesting change from almost everything else we see. It's like you know, using Uber as the example. They're, we're going to crush taxis. You know, Point B's goal isn't to crush really anyone. It's to find a way to work with these large incumbents to make them more successful and it's just not something that we see a ton of, or at least not something I see a ton of. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, how you see that. Well, it's hard, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and it's been a while since I spoke uh, to that company with you, but um, so I'm a little foggy here. But that being said, look, as a consumer, uh, I really want companies like this to succeed. You know, yeah. um, getting, getting more value out of my points program is always a plus. Um, and, and certainly the airlines don't make it easy, right? You know? <laughs> On the other side of that, though, you know, as an investor, I find these businesses really hard to invest in because there's so much risk, you know, yeah. particularly with like, and I'm just simplifying here just for the sake of time, but like, this is an industry where like, there's only four or five airlines that matter with, with point programs large enough to matter. And you've got to work with them and, and, you know, Find, and they, you've got to like find a way to survive long enough to get through the partnership setup hell that exists. And um, so as an investor, these things are hard to invest in because the, the risk is very high. It's, it's higher than most, right? You got yeah. product risk usually, you got distribution risk. And here you almost have like gatekeeper risk. Well, you have a combination of gatekeeper and product risk in that if they get a sense of what you're doing, smart companies, which most of these aren't, could build it themselves. Yeah, well, that that's a loaded thing here. So let's let's maybe let's talk about that. And you pull me pull me back up here to you know when you're willing to stop. But but here's the thing that that's kind of tricky to say. So like you made this comment or you just said this comment of um, well other people could build it. Look, factually, that's probably true. Realistically, we I, I want to like try to dispel that fear from other people because here's the thing, uh, like for most big companies, like for any company, I should say. As you get bigger, growth gets harder. So, mm -hmm. for example, ten percent growth. Uh, if you've got a hundred thousand in annual revenue, is one hundred and ten thousand. That's yeah, ten percent. Not that hard, but that's ten percent. Uh, ten percent for a billion dollar revenue company is a lot harder, right? <laughs> so, uh, could they build it? 
sure. Will they? No. This is why, like, this is this is something I want a lot of companies to understand. Is that like that fear a lot of people have? Oh, the competitor is going to be build or the incumbent's going to build it. It never happens. But now I'll bring it back to airlines. But airlines are a weird sort of protected class because they're sort of like I don't know that like they're generally unprofitable. <laughs> they they like somehow the laws of math. <laughs> don't apply to airlines. <laughs> and so it, it's particularly tricky with those because they could build it. Like if they, because they control the points program and because they like kind of don't have to be profitable. And I, I know I'm speaking above my pay grade here, but like it's a little different. But anyway, b- back to point me, I think that, you know, uh, as a consumer, I really want them to win. Um, I don't know if I'm going to just go down this path anyway. Here's the thing. I have never clicked on those things you know, do you want to add a rental car or whatever? It surprises me that there's enough people that click on those things to make it interesting for airlines and for point me. It's a massive, massive business for the airlines. Travel insurance is a massive business only because... Oh, I believe that. It, only yeah, because I believe the numbers that. are so small for what it costs. Yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah. I can't speak in yeah. specifics, um, you know, because most of the stuff I, I think I know on this is probably covered by NDAs, but like... You know how you have like protections on your credit card, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, travel insurance, you know, trip, trip delay insurance, trip cancellation insurance. Mm-hmm. You'd be stunned at how little that costs the credit cards. Um, in terms oh, I of, believe it. Uh, like, yeah. just because of the, 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 because of the tables, the actuarial tables. And it's, you know, it's an incredibly small fee when they activate a customer. And that's really about it. And so it's, 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 you know, easy to offer these suites of benefits because, almost nobody ever uses them. I mean, even people who buy, uh, there are some stats that were out there at one point, point. I think this is just hilarious. People who actively buy travel insurance as part of the booking path, and, you know, they, they studied, like, they can see how many were delayed because all the data is public, and the number of people who actually bought travel insurance and then remembered to use it is just shockingly low and really kind of sad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but to your point, as you say, like, the, the working with incumbents thing, you know, I, I think we saw a lot of it earlier on um like i think of of companies like oh gosh what was that company in uh in Kelowna? was it banana tag uh yeah it, you know somebody who, like they made gmail more effective and easier to use like there were a lot of companies yeah. very early no i say early on but there were a lot of companies you know 10 15 years ago who were finding ways to make things like gmail more usable sorry I, just to cut in here real quick yeah. I, the one thing i want to say though and i i hope i am not giving away like privilege info here but but here's the thing let me start with a statement I think most early stage companies should not like partnerships with incumbents should not be part of the strategy for early stage startups. Yeah, I agree. Um, because there's too much risk there with the gatekeepers. Um, now, with regards to Point Me, without giving away too many details, here's the thing: like as I recall, they actually had pretty good revenue base off of some other stuff they were doing, you know, related. Mm-hmm. So they could weather the storm, mm-hmm. um, whether or not they had investors and stuff like that. So yeah. I think that's an important thing for people to understand is that, you know, working with incumbents um, can be risky if it's your only source of revenue. Um, and particularly at the early stage, this should not be part of your game plan. Like it should be the nice to have, not the need to have. For sure. Yeah. You, you didn't have a lot of money in the bank or a steady stream. Um, and you know, neither one is terribly easy to have. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just so it doesn't get lost in the mix though. I really don't think partnerships are a viable early stage. Percentage wise, I'd say like if I were building an investment portfolio, I don't think I would try to weight it heavily towards, you know, companies that are looking to, to build 
um, you know, partnerships with incumbents. But I think it's it's yeah. in, it's interesting to see these cases when they come up because I would say, I I, I do want to go back and sort of audit our portfolio now and just see how many companies we have that are disrupting an incumbent versus working with one and just see what the math looks like. I know it skews very heavily towards the the former. I'm just I'm just curious of the active companies we have or maybe of all the companies we've invested in what that number looks like. So yep, yep, yep. And and you know, somewhat interesting that um, uh, yeah that that you brought up this other pot, uh, this pot on uh, HubSpot creators, which we're going to talk a little bit about. And it's just you know, it's it's funny because I remember <laughs> you going through like the, the the like the seven stages of grief, um, it, but sort of in reverse for wanting to do a podcast, where it was like in the beginning I was trying to encourage you to do a podcast, and you're like, nah, I don't want to do that. And then I was like, all right, well maybe I'll be a guest on a few podcasts. And then it was you know, okay, fine, let's do a podcast. And now it's you sending me things um, before I send them to you about things in the podcast ecosystem and um, without trying to out you, you know, building some tools that are coming up that I think people are really going to like if they're in the podcast. Why don't you just say you told me so? Just say that. It'll make you feel better. No, I, I, no, I'm just excited. <laughs> I'm just excited that you're in it, man. It's cool because I can't read all of it. And in, uh, insanely jealous, not jealous, insanely interested for you to launch the next thing from Northstar. Um, can't wait for it, um, but uh, but won't tease it out until you're ready to talk about it, which I know will be soon. Um, but HubSpot creators. So you want to tee this one up? You want me to, uh, why don't I just throw it out there? Uh, you know, HubSpot this week announced, uh, their HubSpot, uh, creator program. And, uh, if you Google it, you'll come, you'll find it. But I find this interesting for two reasons. Uh, number one, uh, this feels a lot like where accelerators, what accelerators were to venture capital 15 years ago. Uh, so that's the first reason I find it interesting. And we can talk about that. Second reason I find it interesting is that this, I, I've been talking about this idea or something like this inside a bump for a while now. And, you know, um, what I've always said is that uh, every company needs to operate as a media company that happens to be in the space they're in, not the other way around. Um, and that's true, whether you're DTC, venture capital, B2B, whatever. And so the second reason this is interesting to me is because this is, I think, the first really noisy thing that we're seeing where where a, a, a very large, you know, these these guys did, I think, a billion dollars in revenue last year. Um, right before the show, I tried to pull up the earnings reports and maybe I might have the wrong tab, but like Q4 showed like 400 mil in revenue. Uh, you know, they got like 100 mil in cash on hand or something like that, you know, for HubSpot. And now they're opening up this creator network. So let's go wherever you want to go with it. But this, I think, is really, really fascinating. It looks like what accelerators looked like to venture capital 15 years ago. But I also think this is going to be a play that a lot of larger companies kind of have to take seriously now uh, in a post-iOS 14 world. So let's let's go, let's peel it back wherever you want to peel it back. Yeah, and I'm going to say something to you that I said in the pre-show and because I want to explore a little bit more and we sort of cut the discussion off. Like your comment about this, this is how the first accelerators looked to venture capitalists 15 years ago, I think is so spot on because I looked at the first class and I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm poo-pooing HubSpot creators because I think they've, I think, I think HubSpot is, is a powerful network. And for folks who, who don't know, um, HubSpot is, um, you know, uh, where my first million is quote unquote hosted, which is not quite the right word, but they're, you know, uh, my first million is for me the best, the most well-known podcast on the HubSpot network. 
I mean, there's only a couple of these networks. Wondery is another one. And Wondery is more of like a true crime or history um, sort of network where HubSpot is more entrepreneur focused. And so like I look at this first cohort of folks and like all these shows could be outstanding. I don't listen to any of them currently, uh, but they all, you know, they all seem great. There's also just a very um, noticeable level of sameness. Wouldn't you expect that, though? Because like, let's let's put this into perspective. Okay, so uh, and keep me honest here. First of all, let's just let's just put a target on somebody. Let's talk about iHeartRadio mm-hmm. or iHeartMedia. Sure, uh, publicly traded company. They own, I think, like hundreds of radio stations across the country. They own hundreds of. They have hundreds of original podcasts. They have their own podcast network. And uh, right before the show, I was googling it. Their earnings report. I think if I read it right, um, you know, Q four they booked. Um, a hundred mil, a hundred mil in podcast revenue for ads in 2020. And that's uh, overall rep pod. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So overall podcast revenue was a hundred mil, a hundred million. And, and that's like a big chunk of like their overall, uh, sorry, a small chunk of their overall revenue. Like they're a billion dollar company, right? Here's the thing. I tell you that because like they're big, they're making money. They've sort of proven that there's something there. On the other side, you got uh, now HubSpot wading into this. Well, I think the way they're going, like when you, you're talking about like how same, the sameness that permeates their inaugural cohort, uh, you're not wrong, by the way, to notice that. I think you're absolutely right. But I'm trying to just point out that it's probably strategic. If you think about it this way, in terms of, you know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about asymmetric bets. And so this is what they're doing is a perfect asymmetric bet. If they do this, and it kind of works, like even if it doesn't really work, by, by focusing in on just startups and entrepreneurial podcasts, which is what they've done, they are uh, cementing their own advertising uh, inventory because that's, that's who their, their target customer is. That's, so their worst case scenario is the dollars they would have spent or the dollars they can't spend on Facebook ads anymore. And instead of spending it on like, iHeart or whatever for placement. Now they just like pay their own creators and do that. So like on the wor- on the worst case scenario, they've got their own uh, you know audience building empire now with these original podcasts. And on the other side, for the asymm- asymmetric bet, if this starts to work and you know the the distribution rises, you're right. People will want to pay to be on those um, you know to be on those ads uh, blocks as well. So I don't know. I, I didn't articulate that well, but. I guess what I'm just saying is you're right about noticing the sameness, but is it surprising? I wouldn't necessarily say it's surprising. I think it's smart. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's smart or not. It's a good question. I mean, the, the, the ad network that my travel blog is on, Boarding Area, is built in a similar fashion. There's a couple of extremely large blogs at the top of the pyramid that that attract advertisers. And then folks like me who are you know much smaller you know, are happy to have the waterfall of stuff that overflows. Um, I think the interesting thing is like, when we think about it, like I think the only reason why I, I don't love the iHeart comparison is like, you know, like if you were to pull up iHeart or Spotify and like look at like the top podcast ratings, you know, back before things were like some of this stuff was was sort of like gatekeepered behind Spotify's, you know, exclusive wall. Like Joe Rogan was, you know, typically one of the most popular podcasts in the world. Um, Call Her Daddy, which is a, a show done by a, a girl, Alex Cooper, um, who talks about sex. Um, 
TED Talks was always in the top five, um, New York Times podcast, um, NPR, and then usually a true crime show. Like those, like those are like those typical top fives. So very much like across the spectrum of like different genres where HubSpot is taking a niche and going very deep into that niche, which I, you know, to your point, like that's, that's where, that's where they know and maybe where the advertising is. I think like when I look at what these folks are covering, it seems like there's a lot of, of overlap, but I don't know that, you know, whether it's six or seven companies in this cohort that they have a great shot to have six or seven success stories. Um, it might, it might be a little too homogenized to have a lot of these be successful. Uh, you're probably right. But I think that, look, this is just like any other accelerator. You know, I, I like to talk about, I think, you know, one of the things I like to tell people or remind people of is that, you know, accelerators are sort of the modern day business school. And yes, they have a high failure rate, right? Like all venture capital, it, you know, starting something has failure associated with it. That's just how it goes. Yeah. So, yeah, so, do, people, so do people who go to business school. It just takes them longer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, with more debt. But, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I don't expect their entire, you know, HubSpot's entire co creator net, uh, cohort to succeed. Yeah. But, but that's not the measuring stick. And, and and actually, the point here, that's not the point either, right? The point is not that they should have, you know, 10 out of 10 growth stories to tell. The point here is, is like, this is, I think, the beginning of sort of uh, um, a, uh, like a shift, you know, and, and I know we're probably glossing people over here because like we keep talking about iOS 14, but like that seemingly little change that nobody really cared about a year ago is like the impact of that is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Just a couple episodes ago, we talked about how Facebook's earnings were down. Yeah. You know, like, like once that iOS shift happened, which again, most people don't care about or know about, but for people that run businesses, it changed everything. Cause like if you were spending a million bucks a month or even a hundred thousand bucks a month on paid and, and, and the majority of that was going to Facebook, well, now it's not going there anymore, but where's it going to go? Uh, well, these days it's going to TikTok, it's going to mainstream ads, uh, you know, like radio, TV, you know, Hulu ads, YouTube ads, all that stuff. Um, but this is smart. This is like going one step beyond that. This is like HubSpot, I think, kind of paving the way with an asymmetric bet and saying, hey, why, why not start, you know, uh, moving, so if, we're not, if, we're, if we can't spend the dollars on Facebook or wherever else anyway, let's spend it on building our own first party network. Um, and, and I don't think this is risky. Like, this is like a tried and true story. I mean, look, Netflix has original creators. Yeah. iHeartMedia has original creators. Hulu has original creators. Every, every platform has media creators. But the, the big interesting point here is, is this is now a tech company. If I told you a year ago that HubSpot was going to become a media company, you probably, everybody would have looked at me like, you're crazy. <laughs> well, I think the interesting thing is like when I first started going to podcast conventions, they always talked about how the big folks like Nielsen and stuff like that, like a lot of the podcasts didn't even get on the RFPs. Um, and I think, you know, I'd love to see where that sits now, because as you said, the money's moving around and um, and and podcasting is a, is a very interesting genre. I mean, obviously, you and I are both in it. Um, it's a very interesting genre in that uh, when we look at the analytics and we look how long podcasts have been around, it feels like the tracking mechanisms in podcasts are so far behind where podcasting is versus um, a similar place in time for when, you know, written content creation started to become big, whether it was, you know, blogging or, or what have you. Um, it just seems like there's, you know, the, there, there's no, 
certainly no Google Analytics of the podcasting world, but there's also very little else. The metrics are are incredibly, um, incredibly vague for, you know, the sorts of things that people want to invest in, which obviously, you know, sort of dovetails back in the discussion of like once the money leaves the the iOS world because they can't track it anymore. A lot of these other answers are, are significantly harder to track. Yeah, I mean, I, podcasting and I'm, I'm a newbie. I mean, you know, I... <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm like you said earlier, I'm just getting into this. Right. But I, I just a few months into this now, I kind of see the value. Like, like I, I've told you before, I would keep making this podcast even if nobody listened to it because you and I chat anyway. I like talking to you. It gets my gears going. Like we're going to chat anyway. Now we're just recording it. So like, I'm not doing it for the listens, but a couple months into this now, it astounds me how little metrics we have access to. Yeah. Uh, it astounds me how bad discoverability is. And I I find that to be really interesting, though. Um, and so I, I, I'm probably letting the cat out of the bag here. But one of the things I'm uh, kicking around behind the scenes is is um, a, a little prototype that might help that. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks here. But um, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like for some for a for a medium that has so many creators on it and it has so many you know, new episodes coming out and stuff like that. It's really, it's, it's surprising. But, you know, actually in the announcement for HubSpot creators, it, it was interesting. They said something like the average podcast only gets, tw- sorry, the average podcast episode only gets 29 downloads. Right. That's interesting, you know, and, um, and I think you've told me in the past that like the average podcast doesn't get more than X number of episodes. I don't know what it was, but podcasts are a lot like startups in the sense that, there's a million reasons why people think they're hard, but just to boil it down, it's really simple. Um, you know, for startups, there's only two stages. I like to say for startups, there's only two stages of the company. Will it work? How big could it be? And 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 I think the same thing with podcasts is like, it, it's two stages to a podcast. How in the world do I create the first episode? <laughs> and then the second part of the podcast is, um, how do I get distribution? Because like, like, without that, it's hard to stay consistent. You know, like, even though I tell you, like, for you and me, we would make this podcast no matter what, if nobody listened to it, right? But for everybody else, I think the average podcaster is doing it because they think they're going to get distribution. And when that distribution doesn't come, or when it's really hard to figure out how to get that distribution, it's no surprise that they sort of, you know, drop off. So anyway, I, I don't know. I'm curious what the audience thinks. I hope somebody will like email or or or, or tweet at us or something like that. But I, I guess I will just say that you were right, Ed. <laughs> You've been trying to get me to do this for a while and I put it off for a long time, but now I get it. I think I get it better than I did six months ago. Um, and I think, I think that like, there's something interesting to this medium and, uh, I don't quite know how to articulate it yet, but like spoken words, not going anywhere. Uh, and, and I think if we can solve or figure out ways to enhance discoverability, enhance distribution, um, and stuff like that. That's good. And I think HubSpot stepping into the space, this is an interesting thing. I think it's, I think when we look back at this six and 12 months from now, uh, this will look like a, 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 a shift that we all kind of underappreciated right now. I was talking to a CEO of a publicly traded media company, uh, you know, in the, in the, you know, women's health space. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, try not to give it away too much, but anyway, here's the point. Uh, as I was talking to that person, one of the, at one point, you know, 
the conversation got a little bit weird because they were kind of implying, they were like, well, we'll just kind of get into your space. And anyway, Ooh, I kind ouch. of wanted to nip that in the bud and yeah. maybe I didn't deliver it right. But what I said was like, look, here's the thing. We have multiple business units. We have a track record of bu building them, growing them, adding more. Like we've been doing this for a while. The long and short of it is, I think it's higher likelihood that we will eventually buy a media company. We will either build or buy a media company. That to me is much more likely than you or any other media company buying us. Not because of cash or deal terms or anything like that, but because of fundamental culture. You know, a couple episodes ago, you brought up this conversation, Ed, about, you know, uh, you know, expanding horizontally for businesses into multiple business lines is hard for a lot of reasons. And the one that you pointed out rightfully so as being the hardest reason is people. Yeah. You got to have the right people that can think like that. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm just saying is this is, I believe, the beginning of a much larger shift that you're going to see over the next 6, 12 and, and further months where, you know, uh, what we perceive as tech company or just, I'm doing air quotes here, just tech companies, we're going to see more of them stepping into the media space. And um, it's only being sped up now because of this whole iOS 14 thing a year ago and the cost of acquisition rising and 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 all that. So anyway, like it'll be interesting to see where we are if we listen back to this in like six or 12 months and, um, you know, uh, but I'm I'm curious. I hope the audience like kind of, so sends us a couple notes on this because I think this is a really, really fascinating topic. Yeah, and I want to I want to peel it back some more. I, I think we should probably put a pin in it for now because we're going a little bit long. But I think I definitely think there's some more stuff to talk about here from a discoverability standpoint. And by the time this episode goes live, uh, you'll be able to see stuff on uh, on TikTok for the show. Um, and let's just say, like the thing I want to loop back on is this notion that podcasting is just talking into a microphone for 20 minutes um i think that i think that's a I, I think that i think that i think it does a bad job of of explaining the uh the ecosystem um so i'll leave it there and i will say that i'd love for you and i to loop back on this whether it's next week or sometime in the future about um about the ecosystem itself and where where it can and should should go to sort of lose this um loses badge that it's really just a bunch of folks in like dark rooms drinking orange soda and eating pop tarts and talking about um talking about video games on the internet sort of stuff so yeah well I'll, i'm gonna just go one step further and then we'll all tie it off here but i'll just say that like i think today you know for the people that are podcasting and that do get past 20 30 and 40 episodes and have some sort of distribution i think most of those people think of podcasting as sort of the bottom of the funnel. It's the thing that you create for your most engaged audience. Um, and that thinking is valid because discoverability is hard. It's not easy for the average outsider to like find that thing you and I talked about four episodes ago. Um, and I think that if discoverability got better, uh, I think what we would see is a lot more listeners come in to, to the space, which on the other side of that would drive even higher distribution for podcasters. So yeah, let's, yeah, let's think about this more. I think this is really, really interesting. Yeah. And I think, I, I think I, I think I'd leave it as, you know, like I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine I was the only one who started a podcast thinking it would be a great way to uh, increase my reach. And it took a very short period of time for me to realize that I wasn't going to be able to convert my written listeners over anywhere or written followers anywhere uh near as quickly as i would be able to convert my listeners to readers um so 
we'll uh, we'll dig into that more in the future. I uh, I am back out on the road again next week. Are you staying home? Or are you getting out on the road? I am staying home. Um, yeah, we're. I think I mentioned this a little earlier ago, but we have, uh, you know, because the team's distributed, we have like staggered, you know, spring break spring break dates for everybody's kids and stuff yeah. like that. So travel's pretty low for me personally for the next. I'm sorry, professionally for me for the next three or four weeks. Uh, but we're gonna try to sneak a little Disney trip in there and you know do do a couple other things. So, uh, but yeah, uh, nothing in the next uh, six or seven days. Well, then you can just book a bunch of Teams calls so you can you know interface with your teams. <laughs> no, I, I I I like them too much to uh, hassle them <laughs> with a download. Yep, for sure. Well, I'll be back out on planes again. Um, I would say that for folks who are tra- who are thinking about traveling, I will say I have seen a remarkable uptick in uh, airline ticket prices. I am paying five and six hundred bucks for one way flights. I was paying two hundred or two hundred fifty bucks for you know two months ago, and I don't I don't think it's all tied back to the price of oil because um, if things could get busier, um, I see planes, uh, hotels. Uh, busier than they were even a couple months ago. So I think there's a, I think there's, I think there's something afoot there, and it's um, it's it's interesting to see. So um, until until we do this again, man, uh, have fun at home while I'm out on the road suffering in row 34 uh, for you know, 500 bucks one way on my good friends at United. I love it. Well, uh, good luck, man, and I will chat with you soon. 